The following audio content is a talk given at The Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. My name is Janie. If I don't know you, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And um, if you've been here for this quarter, we two weeks so far, we're in the third week of the quarter. Yeah, um, we've been going through the book of Revelation. And whenever I tell people, whenever I tell people that we're going through the book of Revelation at the end, the reaction is always kind of one of surprise. Like, really? Good luck with that. Followed by a loud, evil laugh. What? Well, uh-uh. I personally have never really been that intimidated by the book of Revelation. Scared and fearful, yes, but intimidated, no. Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I grew up going to church, and the church I went to, we looked at Revelation a lot. Um, We focused on it. We talked about the end times. We would read up on the estimation of when the rapture was going to happen. And if you're familiar with the Left Behind books and the DVDs starring Kirk Cameron, I'm not making a joke. Um... Those books, that title, Left Behind, refers to the rapture in Revelation. All the Christians are instantaneously taken up to heaven, and everyone else is left on earth to battle in World War III, basically. So Revelation has always kind of scared me. When I was growing up, whenever I came home to the house and nobody was there and I didn't know where they were, I immediately thought, the rapture's happened, I've been left behind. I gotta get, I gotta get some non-perishables together, you know, I don't know, and, and put them in a bag. I'm gonna be wandering the streets alone. I'll be like, I am legend, but it will be I am Janie. Um, something like that. <laughs> Becky made that, and she chose an incredibly flattering picture of me to put on that. Um, so now I'd be thinking, like, how am I gonna avoid the dogs that come out at night? I don't know what to do. Now, even though it was fear that actually uh, was my reaction to Revelation, um, I had to credit Revelation with the reason that I really became a Christian. Because it was was about learning Revelation and the fear of what would happen if I was left behind that made me think, well, I don't want to go to hell, so yeah, I'm going to become a Christian. I was at a retreat in junior high, I remember distinctly, and we were talking about Revolution again, and we were looking at a series of movies made in 1972 called A Thief in the Night. Uh, oh, there's fans, great. Um, and I was watching these movies, and I remember it was the first time I ever realized that the, the gospel is more than just going to church every Sunday, and I wanted to be sure that I wasn't going to be left behind. And so I wanted to show you um, a promo for that movie, You guys can see the special effects and the musical score, and you'll understand why it scared me so bad. So. Cobra.
actually, uh, I think it was that mustache that scared me into faith. And those chops and the mustache actually joined together. Uh, you can see why, you know, that I was like, okay, I'm becoming a Christian right now. Just to let you know, I quickly discovered that my faith was more about fear. It was more about um, avoiding being left behind and that my relationship with, with Jesus was defined by love and grace and compassion and salvation, not fear. But part of the reason we wanted to study Revelation is because of the kind of reaction that I had to the book, and I think a lot of us have, to Revelation is either intimidation or fear. A lot of Christians avoid it altogether. But really, it's a book that is rich with imagery, and it gives us a picture of Jesus overcoming sin and of God reconciling the world to himself and us to himself. And it isn't meant to scare us into following Jesus. It's a book that tells us we should look, we should listen, we should pay attention to the world in need of the gospel. We've got to wake up in our Christian faith. And that is what we're going to, that's what we're going to look at tonight. What it is that this book calls us to, um, this book full of mystery and imagery and just the power of Jesus. So before we get into what we're going to look at tonight, I just want to pray for us a minute. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would fall upon us tonight, that you would be with us, that you would teach us, that you would mold us, that you would shape us, that you would be present in all of our hearts and our minds. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Spirit of God, be with us. In your name, amen. All right, so we've already spent a couple weeks in Revelation, and we've really just cracked the book. And we started out with the greetings from John who wrote it, and this is the same John who was one of the disciples with Jesus. Um, but he actually has been put in prison. It's, it's later. He's like 80 years old, um, probably similar to the guy that came here to do the announcements today. Um, and he's been imprisoned on the island of Patmos by the Roman Empire because he was sharing the gospel. And the book starts out with um, John's receiving these messages, these visions while he's in prison. And it starts out with him writing letters, letters to the seven churches um, in, um, in the Roman Empire at the time. And the empire was extremely hostile to Christianity. Now, um, the number seven with these seven letters is one of the first symbols that we get in Revelation. It's a, it's, an, it's a symbol that comes up again. And there were far more than just seven churches in the Roman Empire. Um, there were several more than that. And this number seven is actually a symbol of completeness or all-inclusiveness. So, so John knew that, but he is writing to seven churches knowing that he's really writing a letter to all churches and all Christians no matter what time or place that they actually read it. Now, John's word to these churches, even though they're in a hostile empire, it's more than just comfort. He's essentially kind of giving them a kick in the butt. Now, last week, we looked at the first four letters, and we saw that Jesus was saying to these churches that they had abandoned their first love. They had left Jesus behind. They were living divided lives. They were knowingly sinning one day, and then the next day, going to church. And, and Jesus was, wanted to communicate to these churches in these letters that they had to look and listen and remember Jesus, remember their faith that they were leaving behind. 
Well, tonight we're actually going to look at three more messages to the last, the last of these seven churches. And there's a map, um, and they are Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, I was actually a map major at UW in the geography department. Uh, my major was cartography, so I'm, qual- I'm qualified to show this map and explain it to you. So that's modern-day Turkey, um, obviously, and that's Greece. So that kind of gives you a picture of where these, these churches are located that he's writing these letters to. Now, before we dive in, a couple of things I want you to notice when we look at these churches. The first one is I want you to notice how when Jesus is communicating to these churches, he is saying things that are very specific to their circumstance. That's something to notice whenever you read Jesus in the Bible and he's talking to people or churches. He always meets who he's talking to where they are. He tells them what they need to hear to understand. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is how the issues that these churches struggle with, how similar they are to the issues that the church in America struggles with as well. 2,000 years later, still the same stuff. All right, so we're going to start Revelation chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, um, you can open up Revelation chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some here for the bottom basement price of free 99. That's right. So um, if you don't have a Bible, you can take one. They're on the tables. Um, and also we have it up on the screen. All right, so chapter 3, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write... These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's a reference to Jesus. It's a metaphor for who Jesus is. So Jesus is talking. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, that you, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, like a thief in the night. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, a little bit of context about Sardis. Um, it was the largest of the seven churches. The most people went to it. It was well attended and it was wealthy. The city was wealthy and the church was wealthy. And it didn't face pressure and persecution from the Roman Empire. Frankly, it was too boring of a church to face any persecution. Sardis, as Christians, were content with mediocrity. And when I think of Sardis and their their Christianity, I kind of get the idea that they were Christians. Now, you guys know what what I mean when I kind of give the, the, the quotes around it. Ironic, they were Christians, they looked like Christians, walked like Christians, talked like Christians, smelled like Christians. But really, they weren't living a life. They were Christians. Now, just a side note, one of my biggest pet peeves in all the world is the misuse of quotation marks and how often the quotes will be used as an exclamation point or emphasis. And really what it means is like dialogue or you're being ironic. So I have to tell you that Becky, who's on staff here, she sent me a text message the other day because she knows it's one of my biggest pet peeves because this is a sign that she saw at a restaurant. Complimentary soup. Yeah, Becky texted. She was like, I don't think I want to know what's in the pot, right? <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh, the, the church in Sardis were Christians. They were Christians, and the rebuke that Jesus had for them was, you are dead. 
You are dead. This is a metaphorical dead. They are not living a real, full Christian life, even though externally their reputation was that they were Christians. It's like Jesus' message is, I know this little con that you've got going on. I know that it looks really good on the outside. You might not look like these other churches who struggle with sexual immorality or drunkenness or the big-time sins that you can see, but I know what's going on inside of you. I know the lying and the judgment and the pride. And you do nothing to stand up to the injustice in your city, right? What good is the gospel if all it does is stay inside the church? You don't bring it out at all. Now, this is, I think, similar to what we see in the Church of America. We can stay busy. We can perform all the duties of what it looks like to have a life in Jesus in a way that will give us a reputation for being alive, but it doesn't equal anything close to a real, authentic life in Jesus. And Jesus says he will come like a thief, a thief in the night. And what this means is that when... A thief comes, he never tells you when he's coming, right? You can't plan ahead. I'm going to rob you tonight, just so you know, so you can prepare yourself. Right? So Jesus is saying, you don't, you don't know when I'm coming, so you need to be ready all the time. You can't just settle for mediocrity. And, oh, Jesus is coming. Okay, get ready. Sardis is called out for its passivity with words of action. They are told, wake up. Right? That's the word that they're given. Wake up. And this word is not... Um, a one-time thing. It's an ongoing tense in Greek. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And they are given several other words of action. Strengthen yourselves. Remember, hold fast, which means obey and repent. If you remember what Jesus has done for you and for the world, then mediocrity is not possible. Because you will be transformed and the, need, the world needs to hear the message of the gospel. It demands that we offer hope to those in need. It demands change inside and outside of the church. It demands change inside and outside of ourselves. Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, I don't care about appearances. I need more than that. So I want to skip ahead to the church in Laodicea. Um, That... The next church is actually a church in Philadelphia, but we'll come back to it. Because the church in Laodicea is actually really similar to the church in Sardis. So let's take a look at um, chapter 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Again, this is a metaphor for Jesus. Jesus is speaking. I know your deeds. Same thing that he said to Sardis. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. 
Now, this is probably the most well-known of the messages to the churches, um, maybe in all of Revelation, because of the <clears throat> verse, I stand at the door and knock. It's depicted in a lot of paintings. This is one that I remember from growing up, a picture of Jesus standing at the door with a knob only on the inside. Also, it's probably well-known from the Jesus saying, you are neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. Now, this raises a lot of questions. What does that mean, hot, neither hot nor cold? Does that mean that, that Jesus would rather that we were cold, like, like someone who didn't believe, like an atheist, than, than be lukewarm? And I don't necessarily agree with that interpretation. Interpretation I like better says that it's similar to thinking about water. For instance, talking about lukewarm has to do with water. So hot water is useful for a lot of things. It provides comfort. It provides warmth. You can make coffee and tea with it. Cold water, also really useful, valuable when you're parched. It's refreshing to drink cold water. But lukewarm water, it's not good for anything. Jesus wants you to be hot or cold. He wants you to be good for something. And the Christians at Laodicea were leaving Jesus outside the church. Similar to Sardis, Laodicea is extremely wealthy. They can buy everything they want. They, they don't need anything outside of themselves. And I imagine that Laodicea regards their faith, their faith similar to the kind of dismissive approval you have from a Simpson, Simpsons character. Right? The classic, meh. I have a, a sh- really short video clip to show you of this um, in action. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome! Meh. Awesome! Meh. This faith is, is lived without passion, without conviction, when the gospel should be life-altering. It should have concrete consequences that we can't deny. And Jesus' response to meh is, I spit you out of my mouth. You're lukewarm. It's, it's almost violent, like he's disgusted. In the original Greek, it's closer to vomit than spit. That's really a nice, warm, and fuzzy thing for Jesus to say. Uh, you make me want to puke. But again, Jesus provides grace. He provides what they need to hear. He's brilliant in this metaphor of encouragement to this church. He tells them, buy gold refined in the fire, clothes to cover your nakedness, and medicine so you can see from me. He uses the language they can understand, purchasing power. Buy from me. He meets them where they are. Jesus says he stands at the door and knock. Open the door and let me in. I will come inside and eat with you, have a meal with you. You are settling for the meh crumbs when you could have a life-altering feast with Jesus. What Jesus is saying to this church and to Sardis is you have to stop compromising. You're compromising your faith. A few years ago, I decided to run the Seattle Marathon. I don't really know why I did this. I'd run a few half marathons. And if you're around you men long enough, you get kind of tired of Ryan talking about running five marathons and doing an Ironman. It's like 26.2 miles try, 140.6. Yeah. 
Okay. Thanks, Ryan. Um, actually, he doesn't brag a lot, but he has done five marathons and an Ironman. So I was like, okay, I've done nothing. I'll run a marathon. So we started training for the Seattle Marathon, and um, it seems like if people, you know, run a marathon, they come out with a really profound something that they learned about discipline or perseverance and hard work. And I'm no different. I came out with something that I didn't expect to learn. I hate running. <laughs> That's what I learned. And um, I continued to train, and about a, I had about a month left in my training, and I started to develop a really severe pain in the side of my knee. Um, and I couldn't get rid of it no matter what I did, and I, and I learned that actually... One of my legs was just the tiniest bit shorter than the other. And with these really strong, long runs that I was doing, 18, 19 miles, I, the muscles were developing unevenly, so I was compounding all this pain on my knee. But I decided, you know, I only have a month left. I'm just going to do it. I'll just run through the pain. So I ran through the pain, and then I did the marathon, and I ran through the pain. And, and you know, when I was finished, I uh, didn't run for a while, but I wanted to start again. Um, I know I said I hated it, but I kind of missed it. So... Uh, I went to sports medicine clinics, physical therapists, all these doctors trying to figure out how to get rid of this pain so I could run again. And it's been a couple of years, and I still can't run. And it reminded me of what happens so often in our faith because I compromised. I compromised so much to the point where I was like, I know there's pain. I'm just going to keep doing it. I'll just keep doing it. I'll just keep doing it. And now I can't run at all. I think in our faith, that's what we do. We compromise. We're like, it's not a big deal. I'll just do this. That's okay. I can keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. We compromise so much to the point where we stop running altogether. Our relationship with God is virtually non-existent. And what God is, what Jesus is saying is you have to stop compromising. We still have grace from Jesus. And all the letters to these churches, Jesus offers an opportunity to Renew your relationship. Wake up. Obey. Repent. Discover the love and passion for Jesus that brought you to faith in the first place. What happened to that? Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have doubts and struggles in your faith. That once you start struggling, oh, I guess I just have to walk away. No, it means don't let it die. It means fight with God. Address your doubts and struggles. Bring those to God. Say, God, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I don't understand. Is there anything more frustrating than when you're in an argument with someone and you're talking back and forth, engaging in conversation, and then all of a sudden they stop and just say, whatever, and walk away? Oh, my gosh! That's so frustrating. And I imagine that what, that's what Jesus is saying. His, his response to this, meh, whatever, of our faith, he's saying, don't compromise. Your apathy that defines your relationship is really telling me, you don't care about having a relationship at all. The last church that we want to look at of these seven churches is the church in Philadelphia. And it's the complete opposite circumstance than the past two. So let's look at chapter 3, starting at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. Again, that's a metaphor for Jesus. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. So unlike the other two churches, Philadelphia doesn't receive a rebuke at all. And unlike the other two churches, Philadelphia is poor. It is small in number. There's not a lot of people. They've been harassed by both the Romans and by the local synagogue, the Jews that are referred to in this in this um, text. And it has suffered earthquakes and aftershocks to the point where nobody really likes to spend time in this city. But they have endured patiently. They have stood strong with Jesus in their relationship with Jesus. And I love this church because I think they are the scrappy underdog, right? Everybody loves an underdog. It reminds me of my favorite movie of all time, The Karate Kid. I'm not talking about that sacrilegious attempt at a remake that was done this summer as like a star vehicle for Will Smith's kid. I'm talking about the 1984 original with Daniel Sun, who is the scrappy underdog, right? When the movie starts, he doesn't even know karate, and somehow he learns about it by the time he gets to the championship. Which, okay, a little bit of reality check, but still, he's at doing the crane at the karate tournament. He's from Jersey, he called it a tournament. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, and yes, I know I'm old. And second, this movie really holds up, so if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend that you do. It's a great story of the underdog being able to triumph. And that is what the, the city of Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia is alike. The underdog that is holding on patiently, knowing that Jesus is with them. If we look at how Jesus addressed this church and related to this church, he talks about an open door. An open door that cannot be shut. Now this is a different door than the one in Laodicea, the door where Jesus comes in. This door is opened so that the church can go out. Again, Jesus equals brilliant. Goes without saying, but the church in Philadelphia, or the city of Philadelphia was established by the Greek Empire for the sole purpose of spreading the Greek culture to the world. Fast forward a few hundred years, the Romans have taken over, and now these Christians are spreading the gospel to the world. And Jesus is saying, this door has been opened for you. I will be with you. And Jesus provides them with words of encouragement because he tells them that even in the midst of these earthquakes that you have experienced, if you look at, at um, verse 12, just the first line of uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 12, those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. He is telling this church that have, has been literally shaken by earthquakes, that they will have a pillar that cannot be moved. In the temple of God that will stand firm with them in whatever they experience in their faith. Because their relationship with Jesus will not be shaken. Like the church in Sardis, reputations do not speak the truth of what's really going on. And they don't last forever. Like the church in Laodicea, a lukewarm, compromised relationship is really not that much better than no relationship at all. And like the church in Philadelphia, the scrappy underdog can't do it on their own. Now, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, 
But I bet you can probably see yourself and your relationship with God in one of these churches. I know I can see my relationship with Jesus. Are there things in your faith that you are holding back? Are you compromising in your relationship with God that you're just unwilling to give up? Stop doing those things. Repent. Are you half-heartedly engaged in your relationship with God, with Jesus? Are you kind of like, yeah, most of the time, but, you know, whatevs. Wake up. Are you ignoring the open door that Jesus has put before you? An open door to share the gospel with the world that is in need, to show your faith to those around you who need the hope of Jesus, to try and knock down the walls of injustice that are so prevalent in this world. Get outside the walls of the church. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but I do know this. The love, the passion, the grace and salvation that Jesus has for you is life-altering. It has consequences in your life that you can't deny if you simply open the door and really let Jesus in. Now, that might sound too overwhelming for you. Remember this. Jesus doesn't say just, hey, go do this. Go be alive. Go do your thing. First, Jesus always says, come. Come to me. Be with me. Drink of me, eat of me, and allow the life-altering, life-changing, life-giving Spirit of God to really take hold in your life.